0: Uh, Good morning, everybody. My name is Scott. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here. And we are talking today about how great and good God is. He is so great and he is so good, he can be actively engaged in the lives of each person on this planet, seven billion of us. We wonder sometimes how that's taking place or if that's taking place. I recall that when I was a kid, I was growing up in a little apartment complex with my mom and my brother, and uh, there was a playground kind of thing that was out in our backyard area, and uh, it was a hot summer day in Memphis, Tennessee, and I got a brilliant idea. I thought, it will be a lot, I'd just gone down the slide and it was really hot, And so I went and got the garden hose, and I brought it over to the slide, and I put it up on the top of the slide, and I began to run the water down the slide, which not only cooled off the slide, but made it go really, really fast. At least that was my hypothesis. And so I got the thing really wet, and the water's flowing, and I climb up to the top, and I get ready to slide down, and I hit it, and there I went. And sure enough, I went at least twice as fast as I had gone without the water on the slide. What I had not planned for was that somebody had left a broken piece of a toy down at the bottom of the slide. And so when I came racing down that slide and hit the ground with my bare feet, I found that broken piece of plastic and it embedded into my foot. And I was immediately in excruciating pain, beginning to scream and cry. I called and screamed and cried toward my apartment, hoping that my mother would hear and come and rescue me, help me. And there was no one coming. She couldn't hear me. And so I raised my foot up and saw this hunk of plastic embedded in it and grabbed hold of it and yanked it out of my foot. And I had never seen so much blood coming out of anything in my entire life. I'm totally freaked out. I'm screaming and crying. I'm in all kinds of pain, and there's no response. And I finally get up on my good foot, and I hop probably 40 feet or so to the back door of our apartment. And I wasn't going to take myself in the in the house and, and spill blood everywhere. And so I began screaming and yelling into the house. Mother, help! 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 And there's no response. I found out later that my mother and my grandmother were in the bedroom, which is at the other end of the apartment. And finally, my grandmother heard me, and she came running, and she sees me there screaming and crying, and blood's just all over the stoop step. And I like, what happened? What happened? And instead of just answering a question or receiving their help, I was so angry, I began screaming, Where have you been? Why didn't you come help me? Do you not know I'm hurting? I could not control my anger. I mean, it overtook the sense of pain I had in the moment. I was so mad. And of course, they tended to my foot and they cared for me and they loved on me and all that. But it became such a picture to me of how we can often get with God. Because life's hard. Life can be brutal. Life can wound you in deep ways that make you bleed. Sometimes your kid's giving you a hard time. And you're calling out to God, help. Doesn't seem like there's any help. Or it seems like uh, when the doctor gave you that diagnosis that you didn't want. And you're saying, Lord, you got to help with that. Or that spouse is saying, I'm not sure I can stay in this marriage. Or that boss is saying, I'm going to have to reduce your benefits. Or whatever other scenario you want to paint. It's like, God help. God help. God help. And it doesn't look like help is coming. What do you do with that? How do you make sense of that? It leaves us thinking and feeling God must be, if He's there, simply and only transcendent. That is to say, Sure, He's great. But He's so great, He's otherworldly. He's just way out there. He's above and beyond everything that's going on here. He created it all. He brought it all into being. And then He just kind of backed off and said, Okay, have at it. But the Scriptures want to affirm to us over and over again that God is not just transcendent, but that He is imminent. He is not only bigger and greater than us and out there, but He's right here. And He is close. And He is involved. And He is actively engaged in the daily activity of 7 billion people. He's great. You go, well, I don't like a lot of the stuff that goes on, so He must not be good. He's good. And we're going to spend some time talking today about that and a lot more next week. As we get into uh, some readings that will especially challenge us in thinking about the goodness of God. But let me catch us up to where things are for us right now. Because a lot of you have joined us in this journey of reading the scriptures. And we began together in Genesis 1, which is the natural, normal place to begin that kind of journey. And we are doing this, if you will, in dramatic fashion. And so it was like the first act. God has a plan for all people. And we began to see in the work of creation how God is the God of all life. And that there was kind of a rejection of his vision for life. There was a fall. There was a coup. There was a rebellion against God. And as sin became more prevalent and more rampant, God had to judge. And God responded to wickedness. And so there was this flood and a promise from God that he wouldn't do that Again, which brought us into this second act then, and we began to talk about it last week, how God pursues us to make a relationship with us, a covenant relationship with us. And we spent a little time seeing how he made a people for himself out of all the peoples of the world. He made covenant with those who would believe and repent And do life with him. And where we will be in just a couple of weeks is that we will see in this act how God then will deliver his people with whom he has covenant. And that gets us into the whole Exodus story. But today we are sandwiched between act two scenes A and B. He makes a covenant people And he begins to engage their lives and eventually they will end up in captivity so that he has to bring about a deliverance. How does that happen? How is it that God gets engaged in people's lives and they end up in captivity? That's what the chapters that you'll be reading this week will describe and detail for you. I'm going to focus on one aspect of all the readings that you'll have this week because it's the biggest aspect. It's the Joseph narrative. We've talked about it many times in here because it's, it's been such an important portion of Scripture to me through all the years. As a matter of fact, I've told some of you that uh, when my sons reached the age of 15, uh, we entered into a little journey together that uh, we called a journey to manhood. And there were a number of things that were involved in that. But part of what was involved in that is that we had an appointment once a week where we went to a coffee shop and we basically walked through Genesis 37 through 50, verse by verse, scene by scene, unpacking everything that's in there because it's got it all. Every kind of uh, thematic matter of importance that you want to address with a son or a daughter. Was there, and so we spent weeks and weeks and weeks going through that together. Um, and hopefully, it made some difference in their lives. But where we begin with all of this in Genesis 37, and I'm just going to hit it really quickly because you're going to read it all this week, and, I, and there's a point that I want to get to at the end of it all. But we're introduced to a son of Jacob. Now, you remember God makes this covenant with Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. The covenant continues. Isaac has a couple of sons. And Jacob is with whom the covenant continues. And now Jacob's going to have 12 sons. One of those is a guy named Joseph. And Joseph just happens to be his favorite. All kinds of things we can say about the whole parenting aspect, but we move on. (laughs) And uh, Joseph is about 17 years of age when we're introduced to him. And uh, his dad sends him out to the fields one day to check on the brothers to see how it's going with the tending of the flock. There's a message right there. Why isn't he already out there working with them? But nevertheless, so he goes out there to check on them. The brothers hate Joseph. Uh, They can't stand the fact that he seems to be dad's favorite. Plus, he's had a dream. He's dream He's dreamt that he will come to a day where they will all bow to him. Now, he's the youngest. And they're all going to bow to him, even mom and dad. And so they hate him. They're jealous of him. And they see him coming in the distance, no doubt to check on them. And they can recognize who it is because he's wearing this fancy coat that his dad gave him because he's the favorite. And so they plot to kill him. And once they get him and they beat him up and rough him up really well and toss him into a well, deciding how they're going to kill him, they kind of have a change of mind. Some Ishmaelite traders come by and they end up selling him to these traders who then take Joseph down into Egypt. When they get him down into Egypt, they sell him to the captain of the uh, guard of the king of Egypt, a guy named Potiphar. Joseph begins to serve Potiphar, and it's obvious to Potiphar that Joseph's God favors Joseph because everything Joseph touches turns out really well. And Potiphar is prospering like he's never prospered before. So he gets this brilliant idea, I'm just going to turn my entire household over to Joseph and see what his God does with that. And Potiphar's having a great time as he prospers under Joseph's servanthood. Meanwhile, Potiphar's wife has an eye for Joseph, who is a handsome guy, and she tries to seduce him. And Joseph says, I cannot sin against God. I cannot sin against your husband. And so she falsely accuses him of rape, and he is arrested, and he is taken unjustly to prison. He gets to prison, and the same kind of thing happens. He finds favor with the chief of the guards. And he soon becomes the lead trustee in prison. He's given all kinds of responsibilities. And this lead guard of the prison begins to prosper with Joseph's servanthood to him. While he is in prison, the king gets sideways with a couple of his cabinet members a cupbearer and a baker and so he throws them into prison and while they are in prison they have a dream one night and they are very troubled by their dream and so they began to talk to Joseph about the dream and God gives Joseph a supernatural ability to interpret the dream and the dream came to pass exactly the way it had been dreamt and part of that dream said that the cupbearer would be returned to his position next to the king and he was. As he is being taken from prison and returned to his cabinet position, Joseph says, Don't forget me. And the cupbearer promptly forgets him. Two years go by, and one night uh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has a a very disturbing dream, and he doesn't know what to do about it, and the cupbearer learns of it, and he says, Oh, I know a guy that can interpret dreams. He's in prison. You ought to call Joseph up here, and he can interpret your dream. And so the king of Egypt calls forth this Jewish prisoner to come and to hear his dream, and Joseph interprets it correctly. And it's, uh, in, in brief, uh, a forecast of coming economic times. There's going to be seven years of prosperity, and it's going to be followed by seven years of famine and deprivation. And Joseph says, By the way, I have a plan for that. If you're interested, the king said, Keep speaking. He said, I think you ought to glean all you can in those years of prosperity. Build big storehouses and just store it all away so that when the famine comes, you've got enough to carry you through. Because there's going to be seven years of prosperity and seven years of famine. King says, that's a brilliant plan. I'm going to put you in charge of it all. And now this prisoner is elevated to the number two position in the entire country. And he is like the second most powerful man in the world at that point. Re-enter the family of Joseph. Joseph. Twenty-two years have transpired. The 17-year-old boy is now 39. He's now the second most powerful man in Egypt and arguably in the world. He oversees all the economic enterprises. Egypt has never prospered like they're prospering under the time of Joseph. And the famine is so great, it's not only devastated Egypt, it's devastated all the surrounding countries like Canaan. And Joseph's family... Jacob and the brothers and all of their children and all their flocks and livestock, etc., are suffering big time under the famine. They hear there is grain in Egypt. We ought to go down there and see if we can buy some. So they go and they stand before Joseph, not recognizing, not knowing it's Joseph. And as he is being uh, pled with to dispense grain to them and to sell grain to them, he recognizes who it is. Eventually, through a series of things that you'll read about this week, this is some of the best reading in all the Bible. You're in for a treat this week. Uh, He finally reveals himself to his brothers, and now his brothers are scared out of their mind. Uh oh. This is the brother we betrayed. This is the brother that we beat. This is the brother that we came within an inch of killing. This is the brother that we sold into slavery. We are dead men. And yet Joseph extends mercy and grace to them. Now, in this revelation of himself and extending grace and mercy to them, he says, I want you to go get dad. I want you to go get all of your families. I want you to get all of your livestock and I want you to bring it all here to Egypt and I'm going to take care of you. They think it's too good to be true, but they take the risk. They say, "Okay," they go back and tell Jacob, your son actually is alive. He's not dead like we told you way back when. There's another whole scenario there in uh, dysfunctional family living. But uh, so Jacob comes to believe that Joseph must still be alive. And so everybody comes, everybody caravans from Canaan to Egypt. So if you're following the plot line of these acts and these scenes, God has just seen to it that the Israelites, the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, will be in Egypt, from which He's going to have to later deliver them. Okay? Now, what we are getting into is some of the most important theology in the Bible. And in just a moment, we're going to be reading from chapter 50. So if you want to open up your Bible to Genesis we'll be looking at chapter 50 last chapter of Genesis in just a minute some of the theology that we're about to unpack from my hurriedly going through that whole story is very difficult not difficult to understand difficult to appreciate it's paradoxical in nature it's the tension between man's freedom and And God's sovereignty. We have freedom to make all kinds of choices and to to make all kinds of moves in life. And at the same time, it all is happening under this large umbrella called God's sovereignty. God has a plan. He had a plan before creation that he has been carrying out ever since creation. And his purposes will not be thwarted because he is sovereign. He will accomplish everything that he purposes to accomplish. And sometimes the workings of God uh, in concert or out of concert with the decisions of man are perplexing at best and sometimes the undoing of our lives at worst. Because of our challenge to comprehend it all. Have I sufficiently set the tension? Okay. So, when the brothers come before Joseph and they feel like they're going to be dead men, I want you to notice what Joseph says to them. He extends mercy and he extends grace to them, not because he's such a great-hearted individual. He does so because he begins to comprehend the plan of God. And in 45 5, he says, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Now we're going to read a larger explanation of that in just a second. But in short, what Joseph is saying is that you made an awful decision. You sold me into slavery. That ought never to happen. That you would betray a brother like that. You meant one thing with it, but at the very same time, God meant it for good. For the saving of life, for the preserving of life. Now, let's get into chapter 50. And let's see another way that he gets at describing all of that. And we're going to pick up at verse 15. Because now they've all moved into Egypt. Uh, Joseph had seen to it that they get some of the choicest lands of Egypt in Goshen. They've set up their homes. They've set up their families. Uh, seemingly all is well with the descendants of Jacob. And then Jacob dies. And as they have this funeral and this mourning and so on for their father, the brothers are once again nervous because they believe now that Jacob's dead, he's going to retract his mercy and his grace and he's going to kill us. Because after all, we were awful. We betrayed him. We brutalized him. We sold him into slavery. And Joseph says, beginning in verse 15, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, and apparently they made this up. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept. When they spoke to him. Breaking his heart because they still don't get it. He wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today so do not fear I will provide for you and your little ones and thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them you meant it for evil god meant it for good at one and the same moment two decisions are being made by two different parties that are contrary to one another and yet they serve to work the purpose of god it's a paradox And not only that, as we get over into the Psalms and the psalmist gives us a historical account of what took place hundreds of years prior in this time that we're reading about this week, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 105, 16 and 17, when he, God, had summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. The psalmist, writing hundreds of years later from this time in Joseph's life, looks back on it and says, not only was God at work to put Joseph in Egypt, To go through all the circumstances Joseph went through so that ultimately Joseph would be exalted to a place of power and be able to rescue his family. Not only that, God brought the famine. It wasn't a matter of God looking into the future and saying, oh, there will be a famine that comes. I think I'll make that work for a good situation. God caused it. Now, it's not by accident that for generations, earlier generations to our own, when disasters and things would happen, they would be referred to as, and insurance companies still use the same language, acts of God. That kind of thinking comes right out of the Bible. You're already getting some of the implications of what we're talking about? Some of the scenarios in our lives, friend, were a result of evil decisions by people intending harm and works of God at the same time. God working a purpose so that some could be saved, rescued. The psalmist goes on to say in the same psalm, Then Israel came to Egypt. You'll remember when we talk about the psalms, they're often poetic language, and so you're looking at poetic parallelism here. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. That's just saying the same thing. You repeat it. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. And He turned their hearts to hate His people to deal craftily with His servants. In other words, the psalmist, again, hundreds of years later, looking back on this time in Joseph's life, says to us, God caused the scenario to happen where Joseph would be sold into slavery and go to Egypt. God caused the famine that would bring Israel into Egypt. God caused them while they were in Egypt to multiply and to prosper and to become mighty, more mighty than their foes. And then God caused the hearts of the Egyptians to turn against Israel. Now why? We're going to see that when we get to Exodus later. But what's going to happen is the Egyptians... Are going to so hate the Jews, eventually they're going to want them to leave, which is what God needs them to do. God needs them to leave so that He can take them to the Promised Land. I'm getting way ahead of the story, but that's what the Psalmist is, is uh, detailing for us. He says, "Now, what about the free will of those Egyptians? At the same time, they're choosing to hate the Jews." While God is orchestrating and working in such a way that they'll eventually ask them to leave. And not only ask them to leave, give them all kinds of wealth in their departure. You keep reading that psalm and you discover that what God was up to was taking his people to the promised land, equipping them with... All kinds of wealth and all kinds of resource so that they could then go in and occupy, conquer the promised land, Canaan. Only when they get there, even though he's been at work in all these ways, they won't believe him. And they doubt. That's getting ahead of the story again. But I'm I'm going to get way ahead of the story now. We're going to move all the way thousands of years into the future to the time of Jesus. Because when Jesus comes, He is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If Jacob's family had perished in the famine, there'd be no Jesus. But Jacob's family is saved. They are preserved in life by Joseph, all the activity that God does with Joseph to preserve their life. And Jacob's son, Judah, Becomes a tribe through which Jesus will ultimately be born. Jesus lives the perfect life. Dies the sacrificial atoning death. So that once and for all, people who would repent and believe could have sins forgiven, sins atoned for, and be reconciled to God and have a relationship with God. Continue this whole covenant thing that begins all the way back with Abraham. In other words... Christ's followers then become the heirs of the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now Paul has a whole lot to say about this across Romans and across Galatians, and we don't have time to get into all of that. But let me just hit a couple of highlights. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says it this way, Now the promises was made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul says that the promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob was passed down through the generations. and There's a whole lot of stories in there that we're going to read over these next few months ultimately culminating in Jesus, who was the offspring that it all rested on. And he goes on to say in Galatians 3, verse 29, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Now what's the promise? There were a number of promises in there, but there's one overriding promise, and it was this. Be fruitful and multiply and become many nations. You'll become a multitude of nations. Now, when you read Romans 4 and surrounding texts to that, you will hear Paul say that that had not been fulfilled to his point in time, to his day. Yes, Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob had multiplied into millions of people into the 12 tribes that would make up the nation of Israel. But basically, that's one nation made up of many tribes. It hadn't become multitude of nations to Paul's time, Paul contends. And so Paul's contention is that the promise of Abraham is now being fulfilled in Jesus because there will be a multitude of nations. Who enter into the covenant, who become covenantal people, who are redeemed, who are saved from their sin. And as heirs of that promise, be fruitful and multiply. God is still about the same business with me, with you, with us today that he was back in Joseph's day. He is as engaged today as he was in Joseph's day. And in all the scenarios that are playing out around the believing community, including the hardships, including the pain, including the disillusionment, including the chaos, all that stuff, he's at work in all of that stuff. So that some might be saved. So that there would be a fruitfulness and a multiplying of people in covenant with him. I cannot tell you how central and core this theology is to your experience of God. Because if you don't get this. You will simply default to a thought that you, that God said He was going to He was going to prosper me, He was going to bless me, He was going to help me, and yet I'm I'm sitting on the end of a slide, bleeding, crying out to Him, and nothing's happening. Why? There are unseen, heavenly, divine, eternal purposes being played out. And God uses both your blessings and your hardships to accomplish these purposes so that there is fruitfulness and the multiplication of many, 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 many that come into the kingdom of God. I'll be talking more about this in the weeks to come. But some of the latest data that uh, has come my way is that Christianity around this globe is being fruitful and multiplying In unprecedented ways, God is at work. Which leads me to ask, will you repent and believe? Now what that means is, you've been going in a certain direction with certain kinds of convictions or or feelings about life. And we're introducing or we're uh, restating again this whole theology of how God is at work in and around you all the time. He is engaged. Will you repent? Stop living like God's not that engaged, like God's not that involved, like God's not paying that much attention. Stop living that way. Repent and begin to live in ways that you get it. He's all over everything and all the things that are going on around me all the time. Will you believe that God does invite you into a relationship with Him? Not this journey of becoming a moral person, a better you, but calls you and invites you into a relationship, person to person. Will you believe that sin prevents and hinders that, and the only way you can overcome the sin hindrance is by Jesus's price that he paid on the cross will you believe that God can still be present and still be blessing you though life is painful and disappointing do you believe your perseverance will be used by God in ways that saves lives We've said it many times, when we gather like this, it's a divine appointment. God wanted you here. God knew you'd be here for us to have this conversation. You made a commitment to read through the Scriptures. God knowing that you would be in the text, that you'll be in the text in this coming week. All these things are happening for God to deepen faith in you, to sharpen your repentant living, to empower your moving forward and persevering so that there is fruitfulness and multiplication of those that are rescued and brought to saving faith through Christ. Let's pray about that together. Father, I pray for the friends that are hearing this right now. Stir so many questions. Stirs so many feelings. And I pray that your spirit, who is present and active with us, would work through all of that to bring some clarity, to bring some conviction, to bring some comfort, to bring some hope about how you're at work with our lives and the circumstances of our lives. For the friend whose heart is mysteriously drawn to you right now to trust you, I pray for their salvation, that they would receive Jesus come alive to you. We pray in his name. Amen.